1: Runaway, Hi, what's going on, Ann Camp? This is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And this is the Church Politics Podcast live. As always, you know me and Michael Ware, who is the AN Campaign's chief strategist, are always uh, on this podcast. But we have a special guest again uh, that he's been holding it down with us during this pandemic, uh, <laughs> who is Chris Butler. Chris Butler is also a part of the Ann Campaign's executive committee, a huge part of what we do how y'all brothers doing today? Thank you, doing that, bro. yeah, yeah, yeah. As you can see, I, I still don't have a haircut. I'm in need yeah, of that. I've I've, like
0: that bro. Yeah, I'm
1: asking for a little bit of grace on that end of things, if, if y'all would. Uh, but we want to make sure that we're just updating everybody that uh, you know, even though we're in the midst of this crisis and we have a lot going on, that we're still giving you uh, political commentary from a biblical point of view, a, a biblical worldview, and so we are thankful for all y'all tuning in. If any of you have questions at any time, go ahead and shoot the questions. We'll start answering those as we go along. But we have some interesting things to talk about today. Uh, number one, we want to talk about something that within the last maybe week and a half has just exploded now, an initiative of the AND campaign, which is the Churches Helping Churches Challenge. We're going to get into that and how everything's going uh, on that end and why it's important for the church. Uh, then we are also going to talk about how COVID 19 apparently is having a uh, larger or more uh, significant impact on African-American communities and why that is and and kind of um, uh, and, and just go into a little bit uh, how we can address that uh, perhaps and, and, and what led to these disparities. Uh, then we're going to talk about uh, Bernie Sanders. As many of you know, Senator Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the uh, Democratic presidential primary, leaving only one man standing who is a uh, Vice President Joe Biden. So those are the subjects we're going to touch on today. And we are going to start with the Churches Helping Churches Challenge. As many of you may know, uh, this crisis has presented a serious issue for a lot of small, at-risk churches. In my conversation, you know, the AND Campaign has a pretty large large network of churches. And in my conversations with uh, some of the pastors who are over smaller churches, I could kind of hear the anxiety about uh, what might happen if this uh, crisis were to to go on much longer. A lot of, to be honest, a lot of of these pastors simply did not know uh, whether they would be able to make it uh, through the crisis. And the reason for that is if you're in a low income area, you're not bringing in a whole lot of uh, ties and income to begin, begin with. But then when you have people getting laid off, and we'll talk about how, especially in the African American community, those non-essential jobs, a lot of those were people of color. Uh, and So you have those people getting laid off. You have, uh, some people have older congregations who just don't give online. And when you're not having service, people just don't give as much in general. So while that may not spell disaster for uh, one of the larger churches, that often can spell disaster for uh, smaller churches. And so when he, having those conversations, I ended up maybe two weeks ago just tweeting out, hey, wouldn't it be great if a large majority churches would consider consider helping uh, small at-risk churches through this crisis? And it was a pretty big response to that. Um, you know, a, lot, a good number of retweets, but I also got calls from friends and people who I trusted who said, Justin, you guys have to do something with this. This is actually a good idea. So from there, I kind of got on the horn with Uh, influencers that I knew from uh, Lisa Fields uh, with the Jew 3 Project, Nick Hall. Then I started to call donors and everybody thought it was a really good idea. So we came up, we got a group together. We came up with the Churches Helping Churches Challenge. And the main thrust of this challenge is really encouraging or challenging large churches to find small churches in their area and help them through this moment. Uh, this is really a moment for the church to show who we are, to show how we react, react in a crisis and to show our love for one another. Uh, you know, on, on our website and as a part of this uh, initiative, uh, we look at Acts 2, where we know that uh, the, the early church was sharing. The Bible said they had everything in common and made sure that every need was fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And that's a moment that we are in right now. So we know that we have a racial divide. The Indian campaign talks about that racial divide all the time. We have a socio-political divide. And sometimes it's in a crisis when you have one of the best opportunities to address those, those types of things. So we have the churches helping churches challenge a really uh, not only challenging of larger churches to help out smaller churches, but also giving them lists of smaller churches that are near them that are, that are in need that they can help. So uh, really, really important. That's one of the really important things we're doing. But we wanted to make sure that we were doing our part, too. So we created the uh, the COVID-19 Church Relief Fund, and uh, we're trying to raise $500,000. We're uh, just near or, or past $250,000 to give grants to churches to help them through this crisis. And so you could go on our website, which is churchrelief.org, churchrelief.org, and you can either give, you can donate to this, or you can... Uh, you can apply. If you're a church that's in need, you can apply. We've gotten uh, three over 300 applications already, and we are spending a lot of our time going through those applications. So that's just a general understanding of the churches, helping churches, uh, a challenge. It's something that we are very serious about. We've built a coalition, a, a really strong team of folks around us. And I'll have Michael kind of talk about that that coalition that we've built around this issue. It's been really great. I mean,
2: that's a that's a great overview and we're, we're passionate about this. We like Justin said, we think this is a time for the church to act as one body. This is a time for uh, there are going to you know, we'll see how the CARES Act plays out. And some of that money is uh, uh, churches are supposed to be able to apply. But uh, but this is a time for the church to stand together and one of the way that ways that that's reflected is is with the coalition we've built so justin mentioned lisa fields and jude three uh we're partnering with the national christian foundation that's uh administering the the fund uh uh what we've partnered with the national hispanic christian leadership conference and the national latino Evangelical. Uh, uh coalition uh goodness we uh, American Bible Society has uh come on board the urban ministries uh incorporated and and Jeffrey right over there uh we also have leaders who have stepped up to the plate so People like Bishop Claude Alexander, who also serves on Ann's uh, executive board, uh, Christine Kane, uh, Mac Peer in New York, who's a leader in the city movements down there, uh, Jim Liskey, who's a former uh, head of prison fellowship, Bishop Timothy Clark in Columbus, Ohio. So it's just been so many more. And you could go to uh, Ann Campaign's uh, Twitter page, and, and we've shared that there. And you can also go uh, over to churchrelief.org and see our partners. It's it, it's just been incredible to see such a diverse coalition, denominations and independent churches, uh, uh, leaders with uh, speaking and writing platforms and those who uh, shepherd churches. It's been amazing to see the coalition that's come together in, in kind of this, you know, epistles kind of a kind of moment this kind of acts kind of moment uh and and so we've just been so encouraged would again encourage you to go to churchrelief.org there are pastors that we're we're hearing from that are even in the midst of this uh these financial challenges even in the midst of the health challenges that are facing their communities these congregations are finding ways to serve these pastors are finding ways to serve, not just those in their congregation, but the communities around them and communities rely on these churches. If we get on the other side of this crisis and small churches across the country have been forced to shut down, we're going to leave one crisis just to enter into another one. And so uh, we're, we're just so uh, overwhelmed by the support this has received and uh, really appreciate those who have who have stepped up to uh to act as one body and support those churches who who need some help right now.
1: And something else I have to mention because I think it's important. This whole thing has been admi- administered by the National Christian Foundation, so they are administering the uh, the, the, the fund, which is huge. That gives it what we're doing a lot of credibility. But one hundred percent of the proceeds are going to churches. So they, when it comes to the administrative stuff, we're covering that. We're reviewing all the you know we're reviewing all the documents just kind of on a pro bono basis. Um, and there's no strings attached, right? Right. So when we give this grant, we do have a criteria. We want to make sure that it's uh, transparent. We want to make sure that it's getting to the people it's supposed to get to. But once they get it, it's no strings attached. We're not telling people exactly what to do. Something else that's interesting, and Chris, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is we have a best practices. We understand that a major part of what we're doing is the funding, of course. Uh, That's an, an, an immediate and urgent need. But it's also the relational side of this. So if a larger church in Chicago is helping out a smaller church in Chicago, we don't want them to just to just give the money. Although we want that to happen. We want a relationship to be built because we, we believe that while that larger church can really help the other church with uh, resources and other things in that manner. There are things that the smaller church you know has that can benefit the larger church as well. And so we if you go on the website again, churchrelief.org, you will see a list of best practices for the doning churches and the receiving churches to make sure that that relationship grows. And we don't fall into the, a lot of the miscommunications and misunderstandings that kind of got us in this situation where we don't communicate in the first place. Chris, any any thoughts about the importance of kind of those best practices and the relational aspect of the churches helping churches challenge?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's uh super important. And, you know, I I just remind us that it is uh, core to who we are as the and campaign, right? You know, it's not like we just uh, saw this and and jumped way out of our mission. You know, we have this book coming out in July, um, Compassion and Conviction, and there's a whole chapter in that book devoted uh, to the the idea of of racial reconciliation in the church. Uh, And and we recommend uh, to churches and church leaders, in the book, uh, that they're very practical steps uh, that we need to take in order to really manifest that type of reconciliation um, that that not only nets benefits for both churches, but we think for the broader society, right? A lot of the things uh, that get done in civics and politics get done when folks from different communities and maybe even different kind of political uh, uh, backgrounds come together, uh, and, and that that should be getting birth out of the church all the time. Uh, and so this moment, this crisis, uh, certainly is one where we want to minister to the felt needs of communities, where we want to support churches uh, to make sure that they make it through the crisis. Uh, but something really special could be born out of this moment because you're talking about being able to multiply uh, you know maybe dozens maybe hundreds uh, of these kinds of bonds uh, and, and and relationships that that again they'll net benefits for both uh churches uh, but I, I think that there's a potential to net some significant benefit for our larger society and, and the kind of broader public discourse
1: yeah I think that's absolutely right Chris you know this is a underlying everything we do as you were mentioning, Is this hope and this belief in reconciliation within the in the church? Mm -hmm. That the church can come together in ways that we have not before. Uh, We understand the racial divides. We're very serious about addressing those. And we're, you know, this is an organization who just wants to have a kumbaya moment and act like everything's okay. But one of the things that we say when it comes to reconciliation is that if you really want to get down to it, you've got to address needs. You've got to address disparities. I mean, to get Uh, churches of color to to really hear out and and to have time to even listen, they have to survive. And so we often talk about part of reconciliation is changing policies, part of reconciliation is making resources available to have real conversations and show that we're the sacrificial church that Christ called us to be. Uh, And that's really uh, what, what the heart of this effort is about. We are in the middle of a crisis, everybody is hurting in one way or another, But we know that some of our brothers and sisters are hurting even more, and we have to be there for one another. We've talked about the CARES Act, which is the federal uh, relief legislation, and hopefully that's going to be helping churches. I want to give a shout out to the organizations, the Christian organizations who really fought for churches to be a part of that small business administration part of the CARES Act, a huge work. And we're excited about that. The fact remains that that may take 60 days or so. Right. And there's a lot of churches that cannot wait that long. And the truth of the matter is, we're the ones as the church who are supposed to be on the front lines and the first ones coming to relieve and coming to give aid to our brothers and sisters who are in need. So that's what this church is helping churches challenges about. It has exploded. Um, a lot of people are talking about it. Organizations that have never worked before, worked together before, are working together on this issue. And the Ann campaign is just happy to be a catalyst for that. Uh, this sort of kind of umbrella or uh, organization or, or movement that I think is really going to have an impact for the better and in, in many ways, just as uh, Chris and, 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 um, and Michael mentioned. So let's get on. Let's move on a little bit. Uh, Again, go to churchrelief.org if you want to apply or you want to give. And we take any gift, whether it's $5 or we've received as much as uh, $50,000 from from certain groups. We appreciate what you can do. uh, And thank you for your your contributions. Uh, Now, guys, here's a different subject. According to Attorney General Jerome Adams, Black people are at a higher risk Uh, for uh, getting COVID-19 and also it seems like not surviving uh, COVID-19. It is evident in the, in the data, uh, apparently from Louisiana, Illinois, Michigan, and New Jersey, uh, especially speaking of um, Louisiana, it looks like 70% of the cases in Louisiana are African-American. 32 and and they're only 32% of the state and it's 72% in Chicago. And African-Americans are 30% of that population. Uh, This is a very serious issue. And the truth of the matter is it's really just bringing up other disparities and showing how other disparities are impacting how African-Americans and others are impacted by this virus. Uh, One of the articles that I was reading says that one of the issues and one of the reasons that it's impacting uh, African-Americans in a more severe way is just existing chronic diseases. Which has to do with access to healthcare. So, African Americans, especially in these uh, larger cities, just don't have great access to healthcare. Well, we've been having a healthcare debate for who knows how long, and we seem to be somewhat stuck on that. But it's something that when you get in the middle of a pandemic and a crisis like this, it pops back up. Uh, as I said earlier, one of the other issues is that uh, more African Americans are working non essential jobs, which means more of them uh, were laid off and having to find other things to do. And then crowded conditions, the crowded conditions of the city means that if you live in a rural area or you live in a suburban area, you're not on top of people and the disease isn't going to spread the same way. Whereas a lot of African-Americans are are in smaller, confined spaces. And so you can't avoid uh, the infection, you know, the virus, um, how others may be able to avoid it just by distance because you don't have a chance to have all that much distance. Something I thought about is how this brings the conversation of just urbanism in general. I mean, there's a there's a huge conversation to be had here of the thought of crowding so many people in one space. I was reading other places, you know, some places in India, social distancing isn't even an option like at all. Uh, So we run into a lot of problems. It brings up some bigger issues. Michael, what are your thoughts just about the disparities in the black community and how that's led to really uh, more exposure to COVID-19.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you hit on some of the key key drivers here. And, and this is what happens in all kinds of different crises, which is that folks who are already struggling uh, get hit the hardest. They have less of a buffer to protect themselves. They're more susceptible to uh, the kinds of uh, hits here. I mean, I think we saw a similar thing with with the financial crisis. Uh, I think we see this when natural disasters hit. Uh, and and uh, these, unfortunately, crises tend to uh, exacerbate and shine an even brighter light on inequities uh, and injustices that are often able to sort of lie under the surface of uh, public consciousness for a lot of folks. So I, th- I think you elicit uh, uh, a lot of the main drivers. I'd say that there's also this kind of uh, vice grip situation where uh, you have a lot of folks who are non-essential and so they're uh, uh, getting uh, fired or or they lack the bargaining power to, to uh, kind of negotiate for what they need. But then you also have a lot of folks who uh, are in what's being considered essential. You, you got a lot of folks who are uh, working in grocery stores. You got a lot of people who are the, uh, sort of um, doing uh, sort of gig kind of jobs. That um, So you have bo- both folks who are laid off and not able to protect themselves. And then you have the folks who are keeping society running uh, uh, and ha- having to work and not getting kind of the support that they probably need. And so uh, I guess the last thing I'd say is I'm sure there are immediate steps that can be taken to uh, uh, alleviate the situation. Uh, but this is also not the kind of thing that you could solve in the middle of a crisis. This is why you need to address inequities in times when, the, when things are not as dire as they are now, because we know that people in crisis situations are uh, get harder when the crisis comes. And so uh, it's it's something we have to be attentive to. I've been, uh, I, I will say how, I've been encouraged by the fact that it has reached national discussion in a time like this when so many people are struggling and kind of uh, uh, worrying about their own situations to see presidential press conferences where you have the president, where you have public health experts speaking directly to this, I'm not. I'm not sure if in other crisis uh, situations we've seen that in the past. I think it does suggest a, a change in the the national dynamic here. Um, uh, but but uh, it it, it, not, it now needs proactive solutions, not just not just talking about uh, and, and recognizing the, pro- the problem that exists.
1: No, that's real. Chris, what were your thoughts, man? Just on these disparities, and you're in Chicago, so I mean, that's hitting you hard as a reality for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were on a call with the mayor uh, yesterday, um, day before, uh, and and heard that even some of the numbers that have been reported are uh, about 25 percent of cases. Uh, where no demographic data is actually reported. Um, And so there's a a chance that in Illinois, you might be looking at 81%. One of the folks from the the health office at at the city, you might be looking at about 81% of all cases uh, being in African-American community. Um, That is, you know, it's crazy. Um, but it wasn't shocking to anybody, uh, I don't think, on that call, because, um, like Michael was saying, you kind of know that anything bad that happens in America happens worse uh, in black communities and uh, communities of color and poor communities. Um, and uh, the question is uh, can we do something different about it? I think that um, we have a moment uh, where the commonality. Is a little bit different, right? You you have this uh, this pandemic where it became everybody's problem before uh, it was obvious mm-hmm. that it was a majority uh, uh, people on the low end, uh, you know, uh, problem, right? Like if, if if this would have been introduced as something that was going to impact primarily, eighty you percent know, of people impacted in Chicago were going to be. Black folks, I, I, you know, I, I got to wonder, like, how what the conversation have developed? Uh, but it came uh, from the perspective of, you know, hey, this is everybody is equally in danger. Um, but I, I can tell you, se- several of me and my colleagues here in the city, uh, you know, had some conversation before any of this data, uh, that that narrative of this is equally dangerous for everybody, probably just ain't going to hold, right? Um, And and so, like Michael was saying, I think the big question is, can we put things in place um, structurally, yes, but can this begin to, like, prick the hearts of enough people where inequity and disparity become, like, a real thing, for folks like on a regular basis. Um, I think it's an open question, but it's, it's, uh, I think there's, there hasn't been a moment, at least uh, in my short lifetime, uh, where I thought uh, we could ask this question in a real way. Um, can, can we reconsider uh, as a culture, like how we deal with these issues of, of inequity?
1: No, that's good. I, th- I think you hit on a number of points. Something else that I've heard uh, pointed out was that, you know, African-Americans who are in these major urban centers have to travel further to actually get groceries and things of that nature. When they're traveling further, sometimes they still have to try to use public transportation, which is going to raise, you know, know, raise your exposure. Uh, So there's a number of things that work into this that we're really going to have to look that, you know, as once this passes and we believe it is going to pass once this passes. There's going to be a lot of work done, or needs to be a lot of work done on where we went wrong and what needs to change to make sure that we can avoid this uh, from occurring, you know, occurring again. On all these issues, I
0: mean we, we've talked about jobs, transportation, um, access to housing—not oh, yeah. just access to insurance—is actually yeah. access to actual care. Um, housing is another one. And one of the big things that's happening in Chicago uh, is that you know it's like, well, you know, you have these multi-generational homes. Uh, households and yeah. you know, twenty-six-year-old grocery stock person has to go to work. And the the council is, well, just isolate that person from grandma. Well, we got a two-bedroom apartment and it's six of us, right? So we can't isolate grandma. So all these issues that we talk about all the time, we we get an opportunity to see in a in in the real world how they are impacting people's lives every single day.
1: Yeah. And one of the things I've been saying, guys, is there's going to be plenty of time. And it's not that we have to ignore it, but there's going to be plenty of time for folks to point fingers and all that stuff. I think one thing that this group has been solid on is I'm not really talking about partisanship right now. Maybe when we get through this, we get over it. We can talk about what could have done better and whose fault it is. I'm not all that concerned about that right now. And I think even with the Churches Helping Churches Challenge, you have seen folks who are on both sides of the aisle really dig in and say, no, no, this is bigger than politics. So I would just, again, reiterate to people, there's really not a whole lot of room to be talking in a partisan way right now. We need to be finding a way forward. We need to be helping. There's plenty of people who need to be helped. And so we should be focused on that rather than saying this party's wrong or that party's wrong. Uh, we, we're going to see a lot of that if you're tuning into you know, the news stations. folks. Some folks are still caught up on that. Um, and it's not to say that we can't criticize when, when things should go better or encourage folks to do, to do better and hold people accountable, but the time right now is a time for unity and it's a time to serve as much as you can. And again, we're going to plug that. You can go to Mm churchrelief.org if you want to be able to help churches that are really struggling through this moment. Let's do the work instead of the finger pointing. We can worry about that sometime down the road and we can have that conversation later. So a lot of interesting conversation. We will be praying for Chicago, uh, Louisiana, Austin, New York, New Jersey, Michigan. These are places that are getting hit the hardest with this. And it's going to take some prayer and a lot of service to get folks back on their feet, even after all this stuff is over. Uh, So the next thing that happened, and this was huge political news coming in the last couple of days, is that Senator Bernie Sanders is out of the race for president. He has dropped out of the democratic primary that there, there had been a couple false alarms before this, a lot of pressure to say, Hey man, this is, you're just frustrating the process. What are we thinking about this? Uh, you, you saw a, a really good, a really nice comment from, uh, Biden. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be efforts or, you know, we'll see if there's going to be efforts to reach out to, uh, to, to Sanders constituency, uh, people who are certainly not happy right now about probably about him dropping out people who, aren't going to be very excited about voting for Biden if they do vote for Biden. Michael, what were your thoughts as soon as you saw that he officially is, is dropping out the, out the race?
2: Well, you know, I, I think he cares a lot about his ideas. Uh, uh, Senator Sanders cares a lot about his ideas uh, as he did in 2016. I, I think he wanted to make sure that he was pressing on as close to the convention as possible. I think what was uh, a number of things were different this time around, the primary one is with coronavirus being so consuming with there being the health risks associated with uh, being out in public with the uh, inability for Sanders to do uh, big rallies, which are really a trademark of his campaign and how he shows how much movement and excitement there is behind what he's doing there. There just wasn't the oxygen available that would justify even in his mind sort of pressing on again for a number of reasons that he couldn't press his message that there were real health risks we saw wisconsin and everything that happened uh in wisconsin with their election which again just to go to the previous previous conversation we've talked about long voter lines before but it hits different when there are long voter lines when a, the, the weather is awful, and then B, when when folks are putting themselves at risk of contracting coronavirus just to vote and having to wait in line for three, four hours to do it. And in Milwaukee, going down from, I think, something like 80 or 90 uh, voting locations to five. So uh, that's a, a bit of an aside, but I think Bernie saw that and, and said, you know, you know, this is time to, to end this, to focus on. I do think Bernie himself is pretty focused on uh, making sure President Trump doesn't get a second term. And so, you know, that's why I I thought it was past time. I thought after Florida, he should have dropped out, but I think he just decided, you know, I'm not even gonna be able to do what I'd be staying in to do. And the last thing I'd say regarding like the the, the path forward, uh, I think Biden is in a better position in the Democratic Party right now uh, with relation to Bernie supporters than Hillary Clinton was in 2016. Bernie's approval rating is in a better position right now. Uh, I do think that Hillary Clinton was having to face like the prospect of imaginings of what President Trump would, uh, what a President Trump would be like. Uh, Joe Biden actually has the has three and a half years he could point to and say, "Look, this isn't a hypothetical. This isn't. Uh, there's a decision to make. There's a choice to make. Uh, you can't just." Uh, stay home and not vote for me. If you do that, you're 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 actually empowering someone that you spent the last three and a half years saying was a threat to America and and should be impeached, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think we're gonna see this turn the corner. Just, just one more thing, which and folks are going to press their arguments however they're gonna press their arguments. But uh, I, I just want to remind people Joe Biden won this primary. <laughs> it's so fun so it's been it's been something else to see people people all the conversation being about which policy positions of Bernie's he's got to take up. Which, no, that's what the primary was for. <laughs> so I'm, I'm all for outreach. I think there should be meetings. I think Biden should make the best case. Maybe there are uh, some policies. But, but look, we had we had 18 months. We had two years of a presidential primary for Bernie to win the policy argument and win win Biden and others over to his positions. If you didn't do it in, in 18 months why Why should this leverage continue to, to uh, in effect, elect someone, uh, elect Biden with Bernie's policy positions? In my opinion, that's a, a bit of what happened in 2016. And, and I don't think that turned out too well.
1: Chris, what are your thoughts,
0: brother? I, I think, you know, kind of pick up right where Michael is leaving off, right? Uh, the the Biden campaign is getting ready to face a really interesting question, um, which is how how do you uh, unify the party? But I, I, I think you got to ask that question. But the first question is how do you beat Donald Trump uh, yeah. if you're the uh, if you're the Biden campaign? And you know, do you go and try to do the we you know? run only against Trump. Like, we hate Trump. we got to get rid of him, you know, which is kind of like the let's get the, the left, you know, part of this party, like, super stoked, burnout uh, yeah. and that type of thing. But you also have to think about the fact that, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump's approval, rate, approval ratings, you know, they are what they are. They, they, they're as high now as they've ever been, uh, higher even. Um, and, and, and they, they've just not really been able to go down all that much. And so are, is some of the party in a little bit of a, I don't want to say, you know, in your own world a little bit, right? Uh, and, and so you you think more about unifying the party, uh, than you do about winning the election, uh, and, and you might have trouble in your hands. So, but I think it is a real interesting question, uh, and something that, that the Biden campaign is going to have to figure out what's the strategy uh, because i I don't know if you can if you can really do both well,
1: yeah, I was talking to a friend who was a, a Bernie supporter, and he said i'm not going to do it I can't vote for Biden i don't think he earned my vote uh, he 'd really have to come and, and get a vice president that I really supported and I've said before i mean this i don't know how many people will take it to this point, but if you're a really a serious democratic socialist right and and that's not me, but if that's who you are. And you're thinking long term. You've made more strides during Trump's uh, during Trump's presidency than you made before he got in office. And so, long term, there is a play that I'm hearing from some people, and and strategically, it makes some sense to say for the for an establishment Democrat to get in office for four years, maybe eight years, actually actually could be worse for Democratic socialists than for. Trump to have four more years and they can make the strides. They can have a stay in the party and all those things. I'm not saying that's the right way to go. I'm not a democratic socialist, but if you're kind of looking at it from a real politic point of view, it may not be the best thing to have. If you don't see that much of a difference between the establishment Dems, the corporatists on the, on the left and the corporatists on the right, then there may be something there. Will people take it there? I have no idea, but if you really want to see, if you think it's time for the democratic socialists and you want to see them make strides, I don't know how many more strides they make with, you know, an establishment Democrat in office. We'll just have to see. We'll have to see if people take it there. One thing we do know, though, uh, I'm thinking there's going to be a lot of uh, Joe Biden. I mean, because he's had some gaps. I mean, it's almost seemed to have gotten worse over this, you know, over this crisis. I think you're going to see a lot of the folks who are kind of riding with him, shouldering some of that burden. Uh, what, What are you guys thinking about that? Just just some of his. You know some of his gaffes, and it's really seems sometimes like it's hard for him to, to hold on to a thought, things of that nature. Now we do know that he has a he has said that he you know he does have a stutter, something he's been he's been dealing with. But there are just some videos that have been coming out, and some of his interviews that have, have been tough. What are you guys thinking on that? Is that overblown? Is that going to play a role? Or do people just not have you know? Do people just say, oh, hey, it's just it's just Joe, and so we go along with it? How does that, you know, how does that weigh into this, this uh, presidential uh, fight? Well,
0: I don't, I don't want to say it's overblown, but I, I, I do think that, you know, for those of us who spend, like, a ton of time, like, watching the news and reading about politics and on our Twitter feeds, like, that stuff has oversized impact. Um, you know, I, I don't, when I'm talking to you know, church parishioners, I don't get a lot of people saying to me, man, you know, Joe Biden, you know, he's really slowed down, um, you know, because they haven't tracked his career. They don't listen to him speaking the same, I mean, like that. It, it's just not that thing. So I don't I, I don't necessarily want to say it's overblown, but it might be a little overblown. Yeah.
2: yeah I mean, I, I wouldn't want anybody to go through, uh, you know, through all everything on record of me speaking and pulling out, you know, it, like it, it's. It, it's, it's difficult speaking at these rallies and, and doing that. So I, I really haven't been convinced by a lot of it. I mean, I do think his his stutter and his language issues kind of play into it. And then the other thing, and this is kind of conventional wisdom to say now, like I do think voters factor in some of this. That, like Joe Biden isn't new on the scene. He's not trying to convince people of who he is. That people are, I mean, he was gaff prone in two thousand eight when he ran. He was gaff prone like that. That's just it's kind of factored into who he is. Um, And and I do think there's just a lot of conflation going on between him saying things that send a wrong message, which definitely definitely has to be addressed, and him just you you know uh, forgetting. Uh, a name for in the middle of a talk, which we all do. And, and, you know, it's someone that he spent hours and hours with, you know, it's like, do you think Biden really forgot who, who is, you know, the head of the UN or, or do you think he was in the middle of a talk and, uh, and, he, you know, he he brings up all kinds of things when he's talking. So, yeah, I mean, well, I think Trump's going to try and make a, a big deal of it. Clearly on social media, the Bernie folks tried to make, uh, make a story of it, but I agree with I agree with Chris. I'm not sure it'll. Here's what I will say, what happens with these kinds of stories sometimes is even if they're built on, you know, a foundation that's 75 percent, you know, puffery. If there is a big moment, right. if there is a debate moment, or if there is something at the convention that seems to validate whatever the lie or the the hyperbole was, then that's when it can become a real problem. If, if a narrative is built and then Biden does something to, to really, in a striking way, play into it, then it can become a, a really salient uh, thing. But I, I think right now it's mostly folks who are paying too much attention to politics.
1: <laughs> yeah, you stole my thunder. I think it's all gonna, I think it's all gonna come out during the debates, uh, during, during those talks where everybody is watching, and, and if something happens then, then people will say, well, or if nothing happens and he, you know, he, he goes about his business and says what he's supposed to say, then it, we'll, we'll see that it was overblown. But one way or another, we're, we're going to find out uh, a lot of politics are going on. But still, I think everybody is so consumed with the crisis mm-hmm. that it's hard. I mean, people are saying it's just hard for Biden to speak in on it because he's not in office right now. Yeah. So uh, he's not really in a leadership position. So all he can kind of do is theorize and put out what he might do or what people should do but he's not really in a position of power right now. So it's going to be interesting. More eyes are certainly on the president than are on Joe Biden right now. and So we'll have to see. Well, that's almost all our time. There's one more issue that we wanted to quickly address that we're keeping our eye on. It's really early. We don't know exactly. We haven't gotten to the bottom of exactly what's going on. But it appears that the Democratic Party in Tennessee has removed a Democratic candidate from a primary ballot because he was pro-life. And because he was, uh, um, because of his, his, his uh, stance on schools. Uh, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about this? What is going on? What in the world is going on in Tennessee? Uh, and and uh, what have you heard?
2: Yeah, I mean, gentlemen, we've, we've, in some ways, we've been here before. But as we were talking, you know, before the show, th- this is just a really striking example. I mean, we've seen candidates be undermined in a primary race. We've seen Candace be slandered. It's another thing for the state Democratic Party uh, uh, leadership to take a vote to just summarily remove someone who served in government for 26 years. Uh, so this is John DeBerry. He uh, serves in the Tennessee State House. From Again, we want to be careful. We, we, we don't know everything about the situation about him. For, what it looks like. He seems to be a respected guy on both sides of the aisle. He has gotten bipartisan legislation through, which you're going to need to do as a Democrat in Tennessee, uh, in the in the state house in Tennessee. Uh, he has taken some votes contrary to his party. And according to the state party uh, chair and, and folks there, they they, they wanted to, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here but this close to the exact quote, uh, they wanted to uh, protect the values of the party by not not letting this guy run. And and, and you know what? One question is if uh, if if everybody has to agree in a Democratic Party on um, so what issues is it okay to disagree on and to and have what's a the point of the primary? Oh, yeah, what's the point of a primary? You know, it seems pretty obvious to me. This is a this is a man who has a constituency in he was running in Tennessee's ninth district. It would have been hard for him to beat an incumbent, but he would have pulled a significant percentage of the vote. And frankly, right now, it seems to me the Democratic Party doesn't uh, doesn't even want to acknowledge that there's a cons- considerable constituency that de- disagrees with the party's approach on an issue like abortion. And they just don't want that conversation to be had. But I'll tell you, it's a bad look to instead of just de- defeating the pro-life position in a Democratic primary with an incumbent. Uh, instead of just defeating him in the primary, saying no, we're not even going to allow people to vote for you, that, that seems like a way to inflame the sort of tension and and suspicion and and discomfort rather than tamp it down. I mean, they should just they should just beaten this guy by forty points and said, well, look, <laughs> guess guess there isn't support for a pro life Democrat in
0: in Memphis.
1: Chris, what are your thoughts, man?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, like we don't know all the details, uh, but you know, it, I, I think about you know when Senator Sanders said in the uh, in this presidential primary, you know, there's no such thing as a pro life Democrat. Um, you know, it, you, you you can't do that. I mean, and again, I don't want to sound too much like a partisan, but that is a recipe for losing the presidential election. I mean, I think one of the the more important details here is that. This is a person who has been elected over and over again by voters for 26 years. And now you're saying he's not qualified. So what you're saying to the voters is that all those Democratic voters, they don't know how to define a Democrat. The person knows better how to define a Democrat. And and that is the kind of thing that that just is not how you get your base stoked. I mean, that guy, I don't know, but I know enough about politics and how parties are built. You need him doing turnout on election day, whether he wins the primary or not, right? So let him run. If he can't win, he can't win, but you can't have him sitting somewhere salty on election day, right? He's an elected official. You need him doing turnout on election day. Uh, So that's just a a recipe for disaster. And I think sometimes uh, in democratic politics uh, these days, we let some of these issues get way out ahead of what our pragmatic minds know about how politics and elections
1: work. Um, and, and it's just, is not, it's not a good look. It's crazy, man. I mean, you two know, I, I don't have a lot of patience for this kind of stuff uh, for the democratic party or any other party kind of pushing people who are pro-life or, you know, don't have exactly, don't match them on all their, with all their sacred calves yep. and the democratic party just has to stop. There are a lot of pro-life Democrats. You're looking at three of them right here. And I and I dare the person who made that decision to go in an African-American or Latino church and tell that church what you're doing. Yeah. I can guarantee you don't go in there and tell that church what you're doing. What you do is you go in there and you talk about Trump. You talk about how bad the Republicans are. And the whole time behind the scenes, you're doing things that hurt people in your constituency. Yeah. Uh, pro-life Democrats have a right to say what they want to say. They have a the right to run. And what they're doing is completely undemocratic. So again, I I don't have a lot of patience for the Democratic Party or any other party pushing pro-life people out of the party, taking them off ballots. That is absolutely ridiculous. Unless you're willing to tell the people your constituency who you know support those issues, unless you're willing to go in the church and tell them that you're doing that, then don't go into a church. You're not being intellectually honest. You're not being honest with the people who are depending on you to have some integrity, and so what they try to do, I think, is isolate people, take people out here and there. But if you're not going to go in the church and tell people that that's your intention, then don't do it at all. Uh, but I, thankfully, the and campaign, as we build our network and, and reach out, we're challenging both parties on issues just like this. Mm-hmm. So we will get to the, we'll try to get to the bottom of what's going on in Memphis, but we won't forget it. Uh, and we, you know, we're we're committed to letting Christians know again on both sides of the aisle. Exactly when things like this go down, and we're not going away anytime soon. So, any other thoughts on on that issue? You know that that makes me a little uh, upset, <laughs> but I'll, I'll let you guys kind of. <laughs> any other anything anything to add on that?
0: No, I man, I, I I think you hit it, Jess. I mean, it, it is is incredibly upsetting, um, and you know, I, I guess the only thing that I want to add is that it is it is a a, a gross example. Of something that tacitly happens way more often. Now, you don't you don't have you know parties all over the country removing people from the ballots. Uh, but again, part of how Justin and I ever met was an experience that I had right here in the city of Chicago with folks telling me right to my face, like, yeah, we want to move you ahead in this party process, but if that's your view on life, it's a non starter. Um, and and so you know it's, it's not removing from the ballot, but these conversations happen uh, way too often.
2: No, I mean just just to reiterate that and, and and say it again. The only reason why this man was able to be in a position to run against Steve Cohen in the primary was because he'd been in government a long time before the Democratic Party was pulling this kind of mess. Yeah. Uh, so think of all of the. Uh, he is a minister. Think of think of all of the. All of the people who would be well-suited to serve, who, who'd be be able to be re-elected. I mean, this guy has clearly has an approval rating uh, that, that justifies re-election after re-election. Think about all the people who aren't even getting the chance to enter into public service because gatekeepers, gatekeepers who I'll say are often trumpeting uh, their, their recruitment of diverse candidates for, well diversity of of, of one store but if they have the wrong views on issues that your donors seem to care about you're, you're not recruiting them um and so so yeah i mean this is this is a gross example as you said chris of something that happens tacitly and that that people just never hear about way too often
1: yeah and the whole idea of we want your votes but you're not qualified to run in our party that's not going to get you very far i mean as long as you can hide it and people don't know about it But once you come to a situation where people are trumpeting exactly what you're doing, you're going to run into trouble. And so uh, we will be that's part of our our mission. We want to let the people know what's going on uh, and we will continue to fight against that ridiculousness that really affects people of faith in in a very serious way. And it kind of restricts us from being in, you know, being in elected office. And we're not going to let that happen without without a fight. So. Brothers, I appreciate your time. I think we had a, a, a good episode. We covered a, a lot of ground. I know you're all going you know—going through the, this crisis. We're going to make it through together. Uh, we will see everybody next time. We're going to try to, we want to do this two times a week. Now that we have this challenge going on and it's growing so much, it's, it's a little bit harder. But make sure you go to churchrelief.org, churchrelief.org. You can either give to the Churches Helping Churches Challenge, or you can apply uh, to get some funding. Thank you so much. Everybody stay safe. Follow the, the directives that you've been given, and we're going to make it through this together. We love you guys. Take care, Ann Camp.
2: Yeah, happy Easter, y'all. Happy Money Easter. Is. This is Tell me, yeah.
0: the I'm the waves, the slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Douglas with a fame.